James Clear, the writer of Atomic Habits, wrote this. He said, one of the most effective things you can do to build better habits is to join a culture where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Surround yourself with people who have the habits you want to have yourself. You'll rise together. Nothing sustains motivation better than belonging to the tribe. It transforms a personal quest into a shared one. Who are you? Who do you want to be? What is your identity? We can determine what your identity is by the tribes you put yourselves into and what those tribes habitually do because we set up our lives and our habits to aim toward our identity. Maybe you say, I am a runner. So you run with fellow runners. You have a running group, right? You wear athletic types of clothes and you have a regular time when you run. Runners run, right? And you track your food because food is fuel for running. And you have regular times of competition or races. You're a runner. Or maybe you say, I am an entrepreneur. So you go and you put yourself into an incubator so that you can build a business, build a new idea, and you bump into other entrepreneurs so you can share ideas and learn from each other, or you, you join a shared workspace and find yourself constantly reading or watching things that tell stories of prior entrepreneurs or business leaders or builders or thinkers, and you're always hustling. You have the job here, but you always have something else that you're building waiting in the wings. Or maybe you say, I am a family man, or I am a mother, and I connect with other like-minded parents where your habits are directed around your children. And you go from practice to practice or lesson to lesson. Family is the center, so the rhythms of your week revolve around making sure you are doing the things a dad or mom must do. Or you're a consumer. And your group coalesces around people that enjoy the same tech or the same hobby or the same gear. And the habits converge around researching the next thing to buy or saving the money to buy it or getting yourself in debt to buy it because it's the next thing or the bigger thing or the best thing. Or you're creative. And the group is creative, pulling together things to paint or pictures to take or music to compose and the things you do must, must show that you're creative. And the house you live in and the clothes you wear and the people you let influence you must be creative. All of these identities have cultures that encourage you in the habits that lend themselves to being the person defined by that identity. And of course there are more, right? The employee in the company, the fantasy footballer in the league, the individualist and being with no one, the reader in the reading group, the engineer, the mechanic, and it can go on and on and on and on. Your community aims your habits toward your identity. And this morning, I want to point us to a story where God changes the identity of people and makes them a community with different habits that forms them in their new identity. He changes the identity of a people and their habits change. Because God creates a habitually caring, eating, worshiping, growing community of those connected to Jesus. God creates a habitually caring, eating, worshiping, and growing community of those connected to Jesus. 
This morning, we're going to see that happen in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. So if you have your Bibles or you have an app, please open that to that chapter there in Acts. It'll be helpful for you to read along. And for the last several weeks um, here at New Life Church, we have talked about how our church is organized. We have been working thematically through this little book. There's one in the back um, in the foyer if you want to grab one, and it shows who we are and what we do and how we do it. And we have been talking through and reiterating, and I want to reiterate as we start, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did produces the type of church to which we want to belong. And two weeks ago, we described the church at the grand level. We're a church-planting church, right? This is not the only congregation of New Life Church. We are a church-planting church, and there are several congregations because the gospel is true. Because people in Westland need the gospel, and people in Gladstone need the gospel, and people in Wilsonville need the gospel, and people in Oregon City need the gospel. And last week, we talked about the function of a local congregation. This group here, the bigger group, not the full church, but the bigger group that is the congregation, and we talked about the congregation is where unity is pursued because the gospel is true. And now we're going to talk about small groups. There's several small groups represented in this congregation here this morning. And we're going to ask, how do we gather as a small group if the gospel is true? And what does the small group practice if the gospel is true? And thus we will be in Acts chapter 2. But before we do, I want to set the stage for Acts. And where does that story start? With Jesus. We're going to start with Jesus. So let's remind ourselves who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus, the God-man, came to earth to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. And he grabbed a few, 12 disciples and said, come, follow me. And they did. And they walked with him, hearing him teach and pointing to scripture and pointing to the king that is himself and the coming kingdom. And he used the Bible to do it, used the scripture to do it. And as they walked with Jesus, they learned how to pray, our Father who art in heaven, right? He taught them how to pray. And they saw Jesus care for people, and they saw Jesus reach out to the disconnected, the people on the outside, and they they ate with Jesus. And sometimes it was a small meal, and sometimes it was an unexpectedly large meal for 5,000 people, right? And that 12 became eventually 72, and that 72 became 120, a small band of Jesus followers. But what happened to the Jesus they were following? Jesus, the God-man, was crucified on a Roman cross. The one they had followed was murdered. But the one they followed rose again. The one they had followed proved to be the king he proclaimed to be, the king that conquers death. The Christ had been raised from the dead. And this small band of followers saw him and talked with him and followed him. And Jesus, the risen king, gave them a mission, the work going forward. Here's what we're going to do. And Jesus says, and this is from Matthew 28. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is the mission set out by the king. 
And just before the king ascended into heaven, he told them, this is from Luke, he said, And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And Acts 1.8 says that he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He said, I will send you a helper. Just wait. And then he ascended to heaven. And that is how the story of Jesus on earth ends, and that is how the story of the church begins in Acts, with them huddled in a room in Jerusalem waiting and saying, what do we do? And the Holy Spirit shows up and comes upon them and indwells in them, and and they break out into the crowd and begin to proclaim the good news, the gospel. They become witnesses of the gospel the good news that the resurrection of Jesus has occurred. And if you recall Peter, you guys remember Peter, Peter gets up in this crowded city, he gets up and with the 11 standing next to him, he preaches his first sermon. And it ends this way, this is from Acts 2, verses 23 through 24. He said, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he ends the sermon this way. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What a way to end a sermon, right? Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, and you crucified him. Let's pray. But the crowd says, no, no. What is the application? What do we do? It says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, this is incredible, is it not? God, the Holy Spirit, the helper sent by Jesus, shows up and indwells these Jesus followers, and now things are moving. We have gone from 12 to the 120, and now there are 3,000 saved and baptized people. They are doing the work of the mission they had been given by Jesus, but this is surprisingly fast. Would you be a little freaked out? And if you were in that situation, what would you be thinking? What do we do? We know we're supposed to make disciples. We have some, some. We have 3,000 disciples that want to be made. What do we do? And here is what they did. This is Acts 2, as I asked you to turn. Acts 2, verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The disciples must have asked the question, what do we do? 
And the answer is we're going to do the things we were doing with Jesus. Jesus was preaching the word and explaining the scriptures. We were together. We ate together. We prayed together. Let's keep doing the things we were doing with Jesus when he made us disciples. Let's keep doing the habits of Jesus. And that is what they did. As Jesus is saving his church, this baby church devoted themselves to the same things he was doing with them while he was on earth doing the work of saving the church. And they devoted themselves to these things. This is the idea to be continuously committed. This is not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing rhythm. These are the habits of the church. These are the habits of a Jesus follower. These practices are the things that, you put, that put you in step with what the Holy Spirit is doing with the people who identify as followers of Jesus. And what are these four things to which they devoted themselves? Let's just remind ourselves from 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the thing they habitually attached themselves to. The apostles' teaching, the original followers of Jesus went out and did what Jesus did. They proclaimed the good news. They pointed to his death and resurrection and said, this is good news. And then they wrote letters. They wrote letters explaining the gospel. They wrote out summaries of Jesus' life like I read from Matthew. We call all of that the New Testament here at the, the end of this book. And they pointed back to the old book of the writings of God's people and said, all of this was anticipating and is about Jesus, just like Jesus did. And we call that the Old Testament, the front side of their book. This baby church stuck close to the words so they could follow Jesus well. They dug into the words and asked over and over and over again, what does this say? What does this mean? How should I respond? Because they wanted, just like Jesus told them, they wanted to observe all that he commanded them. They didn't just want to be hearers of the words, but doers of them. And they devoted themselves, they were committed to, the next one is the fellowship, the common life together the close association together. They shared an idea and identity in being close to Jesus, being connected to Jesus, which means they committed themselves to being connected with each other, the other people connected to Jesus. This is not an isolated band of individuals. Their habits were not ones that encouraged independence and disconnection. The habits grew people together to the point that they were close enough to see the needs and meet the needs of each other. And we'll look more about that in a second. And they committed themselves to the breaking of bread, to eating together. Yes! Food is not merely the provider of caloric energy to allow you to continue to function. The eating of food, the breaking of bread, brings people together. You break bread because you're sharing it, right? They shared the same need for sustenance and they devoted themselves not to quick bites, not to protein shakes, but to the act of sitting together and breaking the bread so it can be shared. And they were continuously committed to the prayers. They talked to God, empowered by the Spirit and with the words of Jesus. And where did they likely start? 3,000 new believers. What should we pray? How do we talk to God? And I can see one of the disciples saying, well... Jesus once told us to pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, holy be his name. A bunch of baby Christians learning to talk to God as Father, 
And I'm sure they opened up their Bibles to Psalm or their scrolls. They didn't have books like this. To the Psalms so that they could use them as language for their prayers as well. The baby church committed themselves to these things. They put on these habits. They became a distinctive tribe and a distinctive culture. And then what happens? This little snippet of a story is a description of the Holy Spirit growing in the church, and the story has a rhythm of they devoted themselves, and this happened in their midst. And they devoted themselves, and this happened in their midst. So what happens next? Verse 33, 43, sorry. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And awe came upon every soul. There was a sense of fear or reverence that, wow, something is happening here. The Holy Spirit shows up. The gospel is proclaimed. News of Jesus is broadcast. And 3,000 people are saved and commit themselves to actions that they were not doing before. Wow. Whoa, right? Revival has happened. 3,000 people devoting themselves to habits like this is a notable happening in a city. The 3,000 would be astonished but also overcome by the power of God to make community, community this significant happen. And the rest of the city looking in would have reason to look from afar in awe. What, what is going on over there? And the apostles don't stop. Signs and wonders, it says. They are proclaiming the gospel with power. And if you keep reading the book of Acts, it'll list many of those wonders and how the gospel broke into communities that were not expecting it. The group, of, the group of believers continued in their devotion and they were together with fellowship. They had all in common. That's what that language means. And they were selling their stuff and distributing the proceeds so that needs were met in their community. This is incredible. This is beautiful. This is commitment to the fellowship to the level that the needs can be met because you are sitting on the couch next to me. What do you mean you lost your job? You don't have a place to stay? Your car, a camel broke down and you need transportation? You're hungry? Well, God has given me things to steward above and beyond what I need so I can sell this thing or this property or this valuable or this livestock and help meet your need. This is thrilling. And this cannot be done at a distance because people don't want to broadcast their need, right? I don't want to tell the world, everyone, I don't want everyone to know the difficulties and the needs. People don't shout their needs, they whisper their needs. And I can be vulnerable and tell the person next to me in a way that I can't tell everybody. And for the person that gets to help, you know this, I can't solve the needs of the whole world, but I can help the person sitting next to me. And that is what this fellowship, this com committed community is doing. Sitting together, eating together, hearing the needs of each other, meeting the needs of each other. And friends, there are plenty of academic and stirring rhetorical ways to point to the proof of Jesus and his rising from the dead. But it is hard to think of a better, more observable thing than this community, this kind of community as proof.
A people loving each other sacrificially points to a king who gave himself sacrificially to make a people. It's amazing. That's why there's awe. Like, what is going on? They're taking care of each other. So they devoted themselves, and these things happened in their midst. And then Luke, the author of Acts, describes more devotion in verse 46. He says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This word, attending, is really a fairly weak translation because the word attending there in 46 is the same word translated devoted themselves in 42. So day by day, they are devoting themselves to being together at the temple. And they're devoting themselves to breaking bread and to receiving their food. First off, two more references to food. That is significant. That the most prominently described practice habit, continuous commitment of the community of Jesus followers is eating together. I mean, that's cool for one, right? But think about that. It's not, it's not memorizing scripture. It's not meditating off by yourself. It's not fasting. Eating together. God uses food to make disciples. God uses the sharing of a meal to make disciples. They devoted themselves to eating together. And they devoted themselves to being together in one mind at the temple. This reminds me of the unity we spoke about last week. And at the temple, this is the Jewish temple and the place where these Jewish people were familiar with worshiping. This is the place of the large, large gathered worship at the start of the church. The people of God had worshiped there together for centuries, so it was a fitting continuation as this new thing started. Where do we worship God together? Let's go to the temple. And they are continuously committed. They are in the regular habits of praising God in the temple and then breaking bread in their homes. And then praising God in the temple and then breaking bread in their homes. This is the original rhythm, the original back and forth of the church. The Jesus followers gather together in a large group to worship and then they gather in small gatherings to eat in people's homes. And day by day, this was not a one-time thing. This was the rhythm of their weeks. And we gather together here and worship in a large context and we gather in our house-sized groups and break our bread, sharing our food with glad and generous hearts. The community joyfully eats. And this baby church was in the habit of having favor with all the people. I'm not sure which direction that favor goes if the people, those on the outside and those in and around Jerusalem looked on the church favorably or if the church looked on everyone else in a gracious way, interacted with them well. But think about it. Either way, whichever direction that goes, the underlying actions of the church to the outsider would be the same. The church was devoted to gracious connection with outsiders in such a way that the outsiders viewed them favorably. This is the habit of those saved by Jesus and called to community, those who have the identity of Jesus follower, disciple, they are engaged with the outsider in such a way that favor is obvious. The new believers are loving their neighbors. That's what's going on. So we have a church, this baby church, engaging worship at the temple and food in each other's homes and the outsider in a favorable way. This is their continuous commitment, their habits. 
and what happens in their midst. The end of 47 tells us, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. The Lord continues to save people. This is lovely. The church is a growing church, not because Jesus' followers are so clever and such good salesmen, not because they did the habits in just the right way, and if you do it just the right way, you produce converts. No, it's because the Lord adds to the number. Jesus is on a mission to save people. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to make and empower a community of the saved of the Jesus followers. And the community commits itself to the habits that are in step with the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And people continue to be saved as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is delightful. This is an incredible story, isn't it? And here at New Life Church, we want our habits to be in step with what the Holy Spirit is doing. And we have organized our house-sized groups to do the habits that this baby church is doing. We call those groups life groups, to point to the sharing of life that is happening here in Acts 2. And at New Life Church, we say, if you want to get connected to New Life Church, step one is joining a life group. You've probably heard me say that. I say that a bit, a fair amount. Because that is the primary place of discipleship, the place where we put ourselves into the habits of what the baby church was doing. In fact, we even talk about the five practices of a life group. We call them practices because these are not things that we are good at automatically. And we need to continuously commit ourselves to them in order to become better at them, to practice them. And do you know what they are? They're in the little book. They're on the board in the back. Food, fellowship, word, prayer, mission. Well, that's a mighty coincidence. That sounds strikingly similar to the things that the baby church is doing in Acts, right? Food, we're going to break bread. We're going to receive food. We're going to come together and make a meal together and eat together around a table or, as is often the case when the groups get really big, some are going to be at the table and some are going to be in the living room and some are going to be at the counter and that guy sat on the floor, right? Or fellowship, we share what was worth noting and being thankful for from the week. We share the lows of the week. We cry on each other's shoulders and hold one another up when life slaps us in the face. And we see needs and we meet needs and we bring meals to each other when babies are born or people are sick. And we show up at the hospital and we are the ride to the airport and the muscles for moving. And we confess sin and we ask for help. Or word. Every week we dig into the words of the scripture from Sunday. So if you go to life group this week, and you should, you're going to go into Acts 2. You're going to read about Acts 2. You're going to ask questions of Acts 2. What does it say? What does it mean? How should I respond? Because we need to dig in. Our goal is not just academic accumulation, but application of the word. We cannot just hear these words. We must do these words. And the apostles pointed to Jesus who was raised from the dead. We must do what he says. He's the king. That's why we dig in deeper. To not allow ourselves to just hear it and pass it up. 
That's why we dig into the Word, to the Apostles' teaching, and not a book by a modern author, helpful though her book may be or his book may be. Can we supplement when needed? Sure. Like when we, give at, we gave out Gentle and Lowly a while ago, if you recall. Or people will read the Gospel Primer together, but not at the expense of the house-sized group walking together in Scripture. We want to walk the paths of the habits of the baby church. In prayer, we talk with God in life groups. We teach each other to pray. We pray with each other. We pray for each other. I talk to God on your behalf, and you talk to God on my behalf. And then mission. We together as a group equip each other and remind each other to live in such a way that you have favor with all people. Building relationship with the coworker, with the neighbor, with the person at the gym, to become friends with them, to love them, to pray for them, to make attempts over and over to lean into them rather than lean away from them. Because you have the good news. Josh reminded me this week that over 10 years ago, I wasn't even married yet, but over 10 years ago, I was in his life group. And when we were first in life group together, I was bringing up this coworker I wanted to love and pray for. He was the one I was trying and failing and trying to lean into. And later, by God's mighty grace, he saved that guy. And that guy came to this church. And now Marshall, that guy, leads a life group. And Josh was telling me this story because Josh ended up in Marshall's life group. Marveling at what God had done. And his response, he said, this is why we do life groups. Of course it is. Because the Lord adds to our number those who are being saved. And what else does Acts 2 say they practice? They attended the temple praising God together. We gather every Sunday just as we are now because that is the practice of Jesus' church. And we gather in house-sized groups because that is the practice of Jesus' church. And let's just, be, let's just be realistic for a moment and ask ourselves the question you will invariably ask, why would I not want to do this? Eric, the life group pastor, has pointed to Acts 2, as the life group pastor should do, And it's a beautiful picture. Why would I not want to do this? Let me just be a bad salesman for a moment. Let's be honest about what we are inviting ourselves into, the habits we are asking ourselves to put on, the habits that the Holy Spirit wants to empower. Why would you not want to be part of a life group? Because they are difficult. Life groups are difficult. Living in small group community is difficult. Because of everything that happens in between the verses here that is not shared. You will be tired. Being in a life group is radically demanding and participatory. This is not an invitation to bench sitting and observation. This is a call to continuously commit yourselves to practices that you do not automatically do. If we automatically did this, we would not have life groups. We would just call it life, right? And it is hard because the default of all the other influences all around us encourage something other than the habits of Jesus, something other than the practices that grow us as disciples of Jesus, something other than what makes us like Jesus. 
They're constantly there. One life group leader mentioned, many times I have thought of an excuse to call off life group that week. And I've had many excuses. And every time I'm thankful, I did not. And he said, my whole group agrees with me. And that's a group that's been around long enough to know not that it will be super duper on that day and every day and every time, but, but that it is good for me. Not that it is easy, but that it is engaging the story we want to engage in. Engage in. And to show up is to admit that the habits are the habits of Jesus. And what else? Let's just air it all out. It will be messy. In order for you to live life closely enough to have your needs seen, you have to be vulnerable. You have to let people see you. You can't be at a distance for them to see and help. People will see your mess. And it is vulnerable to have people see you in your mess and see your mess. No one wakes up on a Thursday morning and says, I want someone to see my mess. But you know what they do say? After sustained time of walking with others, they say, I'm so glad I don't have to hold my mess alone. And the scripture, the apostles' teaching tells us to bear one another's burdens. You do that in those small communities and that is always messy one life group leader said these are not leave your problems at home groups this is the practice of fellowship having things in common and i know it is so much better to deal with the mess with others than in isolation the sin you cannot shake the depression that lingers, the uncertainty about the job or the deadly diagnosis or the doubts and the damage and the shame, these things are best endured together. And speaking of messy, sometimes it's hard because my kids are there, right? Or their kids are there. Or their kids and my kids together often feel like 47 kids. And then you ask questions like, did I even hear the discussion tonight? Did I hear what she said or the question he asked? And this just didn't seem to work well. And I don't want people to see how frustrated I am with my kids and I don't know what to do and parenting is hard. That is all part of the mess. And it is hard. But I also know it is best shared together. And it's not always chaotic. And sometimes the three-year-old is sitting next to you on the couch and asks, can I pray for the next prayer request? And then you watch not just the parents, but others in the group help guide the children in the way to walk, the way of the practices. And they sometimes, those kids sit in discussion and sometimes they listen and sometimes they begin to participate all the while never knowing they're participating in the ancient practices of Jesus. And then a child is saved by Jesus and the life group rejoices together and God adds to those who are being saved. And it is messy and it is magnificent. So then you ask again, why should I not be part of a group? Let me tell you, because we're gonna screw it up. 
and there will be conflict. Because groups are full of broken people. Are there any perfect people in this room? No, put your hand down. And just picture this, if you have a large box with a few balls bouncing around, if that is a large, very large box, those balls won't always knock into each other. But if you put them in a small box, they start knocking all over the place. And if I'm not in community, I don't run into anybody. There's very rarely conflict. Maybe something happens at work that I just couldn't avoid, or maybe I ran into someone at a red light. Then there's conflict but it's rare. But if I shrink that box and get into community, the balls are much closer together and they're bouncing all around. And do you know why there's a bunch of extra pages after Acts? Because the balls kept knocking into each other and they had to write these letters to each other that say, bear with one another and help each other and love each other. Because on this side of the coming of the king, we remain in need of sanctification and we will disagree with each other and rub each other the wrong way and frustrate each other. But I do know this, avoided conflict does not mean growth for you. Working through conflict does. The balls are all bouncing around, but in the interaction with the Holy Spirit empowering the habits growth occurs. In a life group, you are close enough that a life group teaches you where you are selfish. You don't get that on your own. Not everyone wants to deal with other people's lives. You're forced to in a life group. And these are not a group of friends, the crew you would automatically hang out with anyway. That is not the healthy way to start a life group. That is built on the identity of something else, affinity or hobby or demographic. The only identity we hold in common in a life group is that we identify with Jesus. We're connected to Jesus. So because of that, these groups form with people in different stages of life with different perspectives and different struggles and hurts and pains, and this is hard. And it is beautiful. I've seen one member offend another, and they both have to learn how to talk to each other the one to say sorry and the other to learn how to forgive. Conflict will happen and so will growth. And because we're all jumbled together, I've seen connections happen that wouldn't happen if we were not doing the habits of Jesus. I've seen the retiree reach out and help the one who can't shake the addiction. And I've seen the young marrieds pull together and buy all the essentials for the guy that was going to be homeless but is now living in the spare bedroom. And I've seen the business owner walk through the labyrinth of the health health insurance phone tree for the older guy that just couldn't figure it out but desperately needed to figure it out. And I've seen the group show up to the hospital and the person who had never hosted before open up her home. And I've seen the grandma tell the new mom, it's okay, this is normal, everything's going to be okay. And then point her to the gospel and the good news. And then I've seen the young mom on a different occasion point the distressed grandma to the gospel and where her identity lies. Friends, sometimes you don't like this. And you will ask, is this even valuable on any given day? Would it have been better for me not to be there? 
It may not feel it in the moment on the particular Tuesday night or the morning after life group, but in the long run, it is doing something to you. These habits that align with the spirit that Jesus sent to us, they will make you like who you want to be like, Jesus. This is the mechanism by which we mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These are the habits that the Spirit has been using for centuries. This large community and these small communities are the tribe of Jesus. The habits are the habits that bring about the culture of the kingdom. The desired behavior of Jesus is realized in the communities of Jesus. And friends, your temptation, your pull will be to engage habits that make you something else. Some lesser identity, some inadequate identity, false identity, some default identity that will pull you toward making a certain type of community. A false gospel will put us out on our own, isolating where we should connect, ignoring the habits of Jesus and engaging in the habits of some other story that will push you to some other identity. Reject the other stories that would replace your ultimate identity. Friends, your ultimate identity is that you belong to Jesus. And the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did makes a community to which we want to belong because we want to follow Jesus, right? We want to look like Jesus. We will grow into that as we do the practices of Jesus. We want to have lives defined by the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus is the Christ. And he forgives sin and God makes a community. And when the community of Jesus is in its little tribes doing the habits of Jesus, it is so obvious that the gospel is true because people live in radically different ways than they otherwise would. God creates a habitually caring, eating, worshiping, and growing community of those connected to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful you make communities and you make us like yourself. That really is unexpected. That's grace. That you would save us and then you use the, un, the avoidable messiness of people together to make us more like Jesus. That is good. Encourage us in the confidence that you do good things and help us silence our excuses to connect to your habits. May our communities be a place where we see your work. Amen.